We're going to be studying the book of 2 Timothy, which is where we're at right now. In chapter 1, we'll look at verse 13 and 14 in just a few moments. But first, let's remind each other of the gospel by quoting John 3.16. Then join with Christians all over in praying the Lord's Prayer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to emphasize a couple of words as I read this first verse. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. That word sound is an interesting word in the Greek. It's a word that actually means healthy. In fact, what you find here is this, that if you look, and I've got a thing on my iPad, I can press, press down on a word and find every time that Greek word is found in the New Testament, that word is often translated to be made well or whole or healthy. Do you remember how Jesus, when he was criticized for going to Levi's house and eating with all the sinners, Jesus replied, they that are well have no need of a physician. That's the same Greek word. Sound doctrine, to be healthy, they that are well. Now, the reason why I make that particular emphasis here is this, because as a pastor, it breaks my heart to let you know this. There are so many people who have been given versions of Christianity that are unhealthy, that are causing them to walk on eggshells, that are, that are robbing them of experiencing God's grace and God's peace. And I'll give you an example. Back in the 70s, I twice went to the Bill Gothard seminar. I went a third time to part of it. Uh, he was very popular at that moment. Uh, the Duggar family based the way they raised their children on his teachings. But in recent days, of course, not only has there been concerns about Bill Gothard's moral life, but those, some of the kids are, are saying, we've rethought this. We went back to the Bible and we realized that we were in an unhealthy situation. I read Ginger's new book this summer entitled Becoming Free Indeed. She's the sixth of the Duggar, Duggar children. And in that, she said she grew up constantly worried that God wanted to punish her for disobedience. What were the things that she felt God would punish her for? Because she forgot to confess some secret sin. Because she played broom ball instead of playing. If you saw the show, and I didn't, but evidently the kids would play broom ball in, in their big house. Uh, accidentally revealing part of her knee above her, uh, you know, in, in a dress. Walking by the alcohol section in a grocery store. God could get her if she did that. Not even a, eating enough fiber in her bread. In her 20s, she began to study the Bible on her own and found a gracious God who made himself clear to her without the need of those big red notebooks and all of Gothard's extra rules. This is what she said. 
A few years ago, it became abundantly clear to me that this man I had always looked up to as a model Christian was in fact no better than the false teachers Jesus and Paul described. Gothard was not only teaching his own principles instead of Christianity, but what happened is he harmed those closest to him. And then listen to this. So many I know and love have decided Christianity is not for them because all they never knew ever knew was God's Gothard's version of it. They assume that God is oppressive and overbearing, just like God's Gothard's theology. Folks, I've met so many people who walked away from what they thought was Christ, and it wasn't Christ. What they walked away from was that legalism, that distorted version of Christianity or, or being presented with God that's not the God we find in the Bible. Another one of Gothard's former followers talked about the scars in her life. Brandy Minter said this, At 19, I attended my fourth basic seminar. This time, my notebook was already filled out and my Bible was open. So I started looking up the quote supporting verses for each point and quickly realized that the verses were taken out of context or twisted to mean something they clearly did not. Now, not not all the references were misused, but far too many to be isolated mistakes. Over a decade later, I'm still struggling. I can't sit through a church service anymore without having a a panic attack. Unhealthy Christianity that scars people. Paul here says, I want you to hold on to healthy teaching, sound teaching, teaching that helps you experience real life in Christ. So the question on the floor today is this. How do you know if it's healthy teaching? How do you know if you're experiencing healthy teaching? How do you know if you're experiencing healthy teaching? Let me give you four things to think about. Number one, Christians who hold to biblical truth will live a healthy Christian life. People who hold to biblical truth hold experience that healthy Christian life. Now back to verse 13 because I want to talk about the next word. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. That was a word, if you poured uh, something into a mold in that day and time, it would always come out to that shape. I mean, it meant there were definite boundaries and that, that this will produce a certain look if you stay. So that was what the pattern meant. Back when I was 19, I ran out of money for college and I had to go work for six months in a steel mill to get money to go back to college. I worked in a steel fabrication plant. What we did was we prepared the girders that would be sent off to the places where they were building the skyscrapers. My job was, I took the, when they had got the girders fixed, they sent them to me, and I was to take a template, a pattern, and put it on the girder, and I was to punch holes at that, those exact places, because once they were sent up to the floors that they were working, they had to join together at those spots. The holes had to match the other girder. So my job was to take that pattern and put it down and put the holes in the right place. Now, that that meant that I couldn't go one day and say, you know, I'm a Christian. Today, I'm just going to pray over where God wants me to put the holes. Where I'll just today, Lord, is it here? Is it here? Whatever feels good, I'll I'll just put the hole there. Now, that would be disastrous. I had to use the pattern. I had to use the template. Now, folks, I believe as you study the scripture, you'll see that we are urged to stick to the unchanging truth, the pattern that's there. And I want to show you a phrase that once I found it, it jumped off the page with me. I could spend the entire morning just quoting references where this particular phrase is used. I'm going to point out a few. And it is the phrase, the faith, 
Look at 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. At the end of this letter, he's about to die. He's at the end of his life. He said, Timothy, one thing I can hold my head up and say is this. I have kept the faith. I didn't let it go. What I was handed, I held on to. And I was able to deliver it just the way I received it. I kept the faith. Look at Jude verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Jude is saying, now look folks, we were given a set of facts that we have to believe. There's unchanging truth. We were given these facts and we've got to contend for it. We've got to fight for it. We can't let them go. We can't let them be compromised. There's that standard, that pattern of truth. That is the faith. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7 says this. So then as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him, being rooted, rooted and built up in Him and established, here it is once again, in the faith, just as you were taught. So in other words, and I could, I could show you through Acts, I could show you through all of the epistles, this phrase constantly pops up. We've been given the faith. We've been given a set of facts that can't be changed and we've got to stand for and fight for. So the question that I had when I realized that he keeps, is there scriptures that refer to what is the essence of the faith? I'll give you one example. First Corinthians 15, Paul explains what was handed to him and what he's handed on. Look at verse one. Now I want to make it, make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand and by which you are saved. If you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what was it? I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Whatever statement of the faith that you find, that you hold to, it's got to center on Christ dying for our sins and Christ rising again from the dead. That's the essence of it. In Ginger's book, she talked about when she began to date the man that is now her husband, and they have a wonderful marriage. He was not from this Gothard upbringing. And he began to, to question some of the things as they talked through what she'd been taught. And he said, I, I noticed that, that Mr. Gothard gives you all kind of rules and principles and tells you that you can straighten your life up if you live by these rules. He said, where's the cross? Why doesn't he mention the cross? Why does he mention the resurrection? It was, it was almost completely absent from the red book. In fact, Gothard in one place said this. He said, your life is so messed up. Christ doesn't want to come into it until you take these principles and clean your life up. And then Christ will want to come into your life. That, that's works. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. So for 2,000 years... We Christians have declared that there is something that exists that is called the faith. And I believe what that is, is what I find right here in this book. I want to believe what Peter taught, what Paul taught, what Matthew taught, what John taught. I don't want to change any of it. I want to hold to it. But what did they do in the early days before they had a Bible that you could buy on Amazon.com or ChristianBook.com? Well, let me tell you what they did. 
They came up with a statement of the faith. Now, it's not identical to what we use today. They called it the rule of faith. And what happened was every Christian, before they were to be baptized, had to make this statement. They had to memorize it and say it from their heart because Jesus said, you believe and then you're baptized. You're baptized upon a confession of faith. And so they would ask them, what do you believe? And they would stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered. It's, it's basically a longer version today. It's called the Apostles' Creed. But that was the essence of teaching the new Christians. This is what we got to stand on. This is what we cannot give up. Now, as a Baptist, I had never been around the Apostles' Creed. That year that I went back home because I ran out of money, I had a great pastor and great church, so I went to the 11 o'clock service and heard Tommy Jones preach through books of the Bible. He did a great job. But we had another pastor in town, and I went to their 8.30 service. It was Jim Baird. He was the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church. And I'll be honest with you, through all my lifetime, he was the greatest week-by-week preacher of the Bible that I've ever sat under. But it was a different world. It was a Presbyterian world. And they quoted the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, but I loved the way he did it. When it came time to do the Apostles' Creed, Jim Baird would snap to attention. And then he would go, Christian, what do you believe? And the entire church would stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty and maker of it. And then I would look around and I'd see some of our senior adults that were there had tears going down their face. Folks, we are given the faith. It can't be changed. We've got to hold on to the pattern of sound doctrine. Now, with that said, we are under pressure in our day and time to compromise these truths that should never be changed. Some of the pressure is because I think there's some who say, now we're a scientific day and I feel embarrassed by some of the statements. It's interesting to me, if you look at the miracles that are mentioned in the New Testament in the life of Jesus, the number one attacked miracle by the liberal groups, uh, the liberal mainline churches, is the miracle of the virgin birth. Back in the 90s, I had a call-in show on WHKP and I invited a pastor to a, a, a church here in town to introduce him to the, con to, the, to the people in town. And just before we started on air, he looked at me and said, whatever you do, don't ask me if I believe the virgin birth. I mean, that was his first statement to before, before we went on air. You know, I, I sit here and think, now, wait a minute. I, I have a God who's so big, he flung the stars into space. I would figure a virgin birth wouldn't make him sweat. I, I mean, the, the question I have for liberals is how big is your God? you got a mighty small God. But what people are saying, we're scientific. We can't go with things like a virgin birth. And so out of embarrassment, I think, some of us have compromised because we want to be known as scientific. Uh, the, the, last, uh, the only report I could find that talked about the decline in belief in the virgin birth among denominations is this, 2017. Among the mainline denominations, the Methodists, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Lutherans, the Episcopal. In 2017, they found that the number of people in those mainline churches had, uh, who believed in the virgin birth, this is the people in the pew, not the preachers. The people in the pew that believed in the virgin birth had dropped from 83% to 71%. In 1984, Karen and I made our first trip overseas. We got one of those little tours that took you on a bus from Germany over to London and back. And uh, it's our first time to see those countries. 
And we were dropped off at Windsor, which is a cute town. And Karen said she'd like to do some shopping. I despise shopping. (laughs) And so I saw a bus stop and I said, honey, I'll be over there talking to people. So you'll find me there whenever you get through shopping. So I walked out up there and started putting on my best southern accent. Love this here country, y'all guy. This is a great one. <laughs> I just want to make sure they knew I wasn't from there. And so started having conversations. And, and I talked to one man. I said, sir, do you go to church? He said, I used to. And, and I said, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And I'm as interested in finding out why people quit church as finding out why they go to church. Could I ask you why you quit going to church? And he said, well, I was listening to my pastor. I'd been in that church for years and years. And one day it dawned on me that I believed more than my pastor believed. And he said, I just couldn't see any reason to keep going. But there's another area in which we're being pressured to compromise. And that is in the areas that are unpopular, especially in biblical morality. And that pressure is taking a toll on us right now. I found a 2019 Pew Center survey, and it found that among the mainline churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopal, those churches, 66% in 2019, 66% supported same-sex marriage. Even more troubling, among Roman Catholics, 61% supported same-sex marriage. But here's something that broke my heart. Among those who call themselves evangelical Bible-believing Christians, 29% said they believed in same-sex marriage. So here we've got this pressure. We've been given the truth. Hold fast the pattern of sound doctrine. Don't let it go. Don't compromise. Don't yield. So a healthy Christian is one who says, I know where the truth is. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not, it's not going to be changed. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to fight for it. But then there's two other things in this text that I want to bring out to you. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, hold on to, let's go to the next verse, brother. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. How? In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I've got to hold on to the truth. I can't compromise the truth. But I've got to hold that truth two ways. I've got to hold it in faith. And I've got to hold it in love. I'm a church history teacher. I love church history. And one of the things that sadly happened after the Reformation was this. I believe the Reformation was a real move of God. It was a real revival. The people discovered the gospel again, that you're saved by faith alone and God changed lives. But in the couple hundred years after that, the the generation after that real revival, what happened was this. They began to raggle over the words that were used in their creeds. They began to fight over how you express that. And so they went to to, to divide from each other and fight with each other all over how to express the doctrine of the Reformation to the point where 200 years later, all they had was head knowledge. Did you say it the right way? And then there in the land of the Reformation, there began a revival again. It was called the Pietist Movement. Herman Franke, Philip Spainer, uh, Count von Zinzendorf, who sent Moravian missionaries over to Winston-Salem, and who also helped bring John Wesley to saving faith. 
These folks said, we've lost something important. It's all up here. We've lost the heart. And so they began to do something like starting a network of people who would meet in homes and read and pray together the Bible. And they were saying, it's not enough to say, I know the fact. Have you experienced salvation? Do you know God personally? And God raised this up to be a great revival because friends, let me make this clear. Healthy, healthy faith is one that is doctrinally correct but moves from the head to the heart as well. I've got to believe it. It's got to become a part of my my DNA of how I believe. And then lastly, oh, by the way, oh, yeah, then lastly, We've got to hold on to sound doctrine also in love. Once again, at verse 13, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we've got to be loving as well as, the, as well as accurate in our doctrinal stands. I'm currently reading the, a biography of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was one of the great intellectuals who defended Christianity in the 20th century. I appreciate all of his stands. He was a part of a break-off group. What had happened was J. Gratian Machen, a great man of God, fought against the liberalism at Princeton and then decided that, we had to, that they had to start a new seminary and a new denomination. So they started uh, Westminster Seminary and then the Orthodox Presbyterian Church because they just could not be in fellowship with people who denied the virgin birth and other great truths. And so they formed this denomination. Francis Schaeffer, as a young man called to the ministry, decided to go there. But while he was there, there became a division there in that denomination, in that seminary. And there were people who were saying they haven't gone far enough. In fact, I smell liberalism in the room. And so led by Carl McIntyre and Francis Schaeffer. They broke away and founded a new seminary, the Bible Presbyterian Seminary, and a new denomination, the Bible Presbyterian Church. And what drew them to the conclusion that Machen was liberal in the, in the two things. Machen's taught that drunkenness was a sin. The Bible says that clearly. But he didn't believe that one social drink would be a sin. So he, he drew his line there. McIntyre, Schaefer believed one beer was sinful. So they said, there's liberalism, and we're going to leave. But the other thing was this, and I went and got my Bible off my shelf because I love this thing. Machen was an amillennialist, as so many Calvinists are. They basically mean, believe that when Jesus comes back, that's it. There's no things that happened before. There's no things that happened after. If he comes back, that's it. It's over. You start eternity. But the most popular Bible of that day and time was the Schofield Bible. And Francis Schaeffer loved the Schofield Bible. And Carl McIntyre loved the Schofield Bible. And they were premillennial. And so because they'll have a beer. And because they're amillennial and we're premillennial, we're going to pull out and be separate. And they formed that. And then they made Francis Schaeffer their person to go and form a worldwide communion of separated Christians. And he did that. He went to Europe and did that. And he fought for the truth. And he fought to get away from even people he felt like had compromised in Christianity. Now, years later, God had changed his thinking on that attitude. And he wrote a little booklet, which he published three separate times. Two times in a book and once on his own. And it was called The Mark of the Christian. 
And in the book, The Mark of the Christian, he said this. He said, John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple, if you have love for one another. He said, I look back over my life. I look back over our lives there in the separatist group. And what I found was we had fought to the death for the truth, but there was no love in any of us. We were fighting and not speaking the truth in love. And he believed that that was sinful before God. And so he wrote this booklet as a call to remember that the mark of the Christian was love. In fact, he was known as an apologist. The word apologist means a defender of the faith. He said the final apologetic of the Christian life is love. Have you ever said something to your spouse that was the thing that needed to be said, but you said it in the wrong way? Perhaps that's your (laughs) ex-spouse. Have you ever said something to your children that was the right thing, but said in the wrong way? And it caused a real rift between you and them. Folks, we've got to speak the truth, but we've got to speak the truth in love. David Wilkerson was a country preacher and he felt God say to him, I want you to go to New York. This is the late 50s. And I want you to win gang members to Christ. The gangs had taken over the streets of New York and the most feared gang of all was the Mau Mau's. And the most feared fighter in the Mau Mau's was a man named Nicky Cruz. And no telling how many people he had stabbed in fights, how many people. I mean, this, this guy was fierce and hardly a conscience. But David Wilkerson befriended him, kept sharing the gospel, and God began to convict him, and that made him uncomfortable. And one day, when Wilkerson was talking with him, he reached into his pocket, pulled out his switchblade. He said, I don't want you to ever talk to me again. Don't you talk to me about Jesus anymore. I want you to go away, and I never want to see you again. And if I see you, I'm going to cut you up into pieces. I love David Wilkerson's response. He said, Nikki, you can cut me into pieces, but every piece will say, I love you. And Jesus loves you. I hope every one of us, every part of us, will constantly be saying, Jesus loves you. And I love you. And put those two together. Because we've got to hold on to the pattern of truth. There's too much pressure to compromise in this day and time. But we've got to hold on to it with faith. It can't be just up here. It's got to be here in my heart. And I've got to hold on to it in love. And speak the truth in love. Would you pray with me about that now? Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will take these principles and and work them into our church. Lord, we are a church that loves you and loves the Bible. Everybody knows that. But Lord, there's there's, the fight's going to go on. People in this room are going to be tempted to compromise. Hold them up, Lord. Help them in the power of the Holy Spirit to hold on to the pattern of truth. And oh, Lord, I want to believe you with my heart. I want to love people from my heart. Help us do it the right way. I pray that. I plead for that in Jesus' name. Amen.